Good day, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of Infection Control Matters. Brett Mitchell here, and Phil's with me. G'day, Phil. G'day, Brett. Good to see you. Yeah, you too. Now, today we're going to be talking about an article that's in preprint. It has gone through peer review uh, with the American Journal of Infection Control, and it's called Concerns and Frustrations about the Public Reporting of Device-Related Healthcare-Associated Infections, Perspectives of Hospital Leaders and Staff. And uh, I think you and I both might have read this article, Phil, and thought might be a few interesting things in it. Yeah, thanks, Brett. It's um, anything to do with surveillance data and public reporting. I um, I have an interest in, I must say, because um, for us in Australia, we have none of that. <laughs> so uh, we're always very curious as to how it, how it works in, uh, in in other countries. But this is a paper that was authored by Sarah McEwen from the Ohio State University uh, in Hawaii, USA. And so uh, what they did was this was a part of a, a larger study that was undertaken in 17 to 19, I think it was 2017 to 19. Mm. And they interviewed 471 participants from a number of hospitals across the states and asked them questions about, they, they were after their viewpoints of what, how they regarded identifying HAIs in their hospitals mm. and also how, um, what sort of, uh, what they thought about the public reporting of that data as well. So there's 18 hospitals, I think. 18 so it, it was a pretty big and, and quite a few people involved in the, in the interviews, didn't they? Yeah, so what they did was they um, interviewed leaders in both administrative and clinical areas and also staff, physicians and nurses. They used a semi-structured interview guide. Unfortunately, that guide's not available with the preprint. Um, and all the, um, all, the video, all the interviews, of course, were recorded and transcribed. Yeah, so of those 470-odd participants, it was, it was an interesting mix, as you say. There was you know, the administrative leaders, I think there's 50-odd of those, and clinical leaders, 140-odd. And, and then there were healthcare providers so nurses and physicians i think there was about 200 and something of 280 odd of those and about 180 individuals holding positions in infection prevention and control and quality so it was quite an interesting mix you know we've got the perspectives of of clinicians uh, patient safety ipc and and hospital i guess administrators in this so good good diverse mix the one thing which i know is not the point of the paper um, because this was clearly about the scope of leaders and people working in hospital. But before we go any further, this one, it did make me think about patient perspective on uh, public reporting. We might touch on that towards the end. So this was this was um, focusing just on on uh, people in the healthcare system. Yeah, that's that's correct. I think that's that's true. Brett, I, I do uh, bring up that issue that you raised about what consumers think the public reporting mm. shortly so not surprisingly I, I guess there wasn't a lot of variation in the responses from the people who were interviewed and there were two overarching concerns about the public reporting of HAIs first one was that there was a lack of trust in publicly reported HAI data and the second one, that there was questions about the consequences of public reporting of the HIA data. Mm. And as we know, the public reporting of HIA data can be used for various 
things. It can be used in punitive ways, or it can also be used to try and incentivize um, in performance improvement. Mm. But there was um, many of the interviewees expressed both a lack of trust in data coming from their own organization, as well as a lack of trust in data coming from other organizations. So we've got a situation here where data has been publicly reported and the staff don't believe that their data is correct and they don't believe that any other data that's been <laughs> reported is accurate either. So it sort of raises a few flags, doesn't it? It does. I mean, the other interesting thing about that is validation. So, you know, the external validation of some of this data. And I wonder, um, the paper, as far as I read it, didn't really talk about any external validation processes that might be in place as part of this public reporting or checking the data quality. You know, Phil, you've done a bit of work on this um, and a few years ago in your PhD and plenty of others where, you know, you can give someone a scenario to apply surveillance definitions to and you might come up sometimes with a certain outcome and other times might be slightly different outcome. And so I think that external validation process is really important to give assurances to um, individuals within organizations that their data is correct, but also that others' data is correct. And that was one thing we explored a bit here in Australia for a while. How are we going to look at some kind of external validation of things like our stuff or bacteremia data? Yeah, and that's, that's very true. And that's, that also came out um, in some of these findings where the um, staff um, didn't think the data was accurate because they didn't actually trust the definitions. So it's not actually, it's not, um, or not just a matter of trusting the definitions, you also have to trust the clinicians who apply the definitions. And so you have to trust that they are going to apply them consistently uh, across all scenarios and also between themselves. And we know for a fact that that doesn't happen. When the human factor is involved, um, there's going to be variation and the more humans involved, the, the greater variation. So that's, I think, perhaps what leads to this distrust of data. Yeah, it's funny It's funny about the definitions, isn't it? Because it's it's something that always crops up. You know, when I was working in hospital and also at the state level, uh, and even now we're doing stuff, the, the question always comes up, oh, but the definition isn't right. And that might be true, and then that's a, but that's a completely separate discussion point because if everyone's applying that definition in its intended form, then that's not such an issue. You know, that's it's a separate issue as to whether how sensitive or specific that definition might be. But if it's being applied consistently and by all organisations over a long period of time, then that is less of an issue in my mind with respect to things like surveillance. Clearly, issues about credibility and various other things arise from it, but um, particularly with clinicians. But um, yeah, I don't see that as an issue if the definition is crystal clear, whether you agree with it or not, but if it's applied appropriately, I don't see that as so much of an issue. What do you what do you think about that, Phil? Well, it actually, um, reading this paper reminded me of, um, you know, that the landmark study that Mary Dixon Woods did, published in 2012 in, in the Millback Quarterly, and it was an ethnographic study of infection data reported patient safety program. And she looked, uh, did this study in 17 ICUs, uh, looking at their central line associated bloodstream infections and interviewed staff. And, mm. um, you know, one of the findings that I do recall vividly was that she didn't believe that staff were actually gaming the data, but 
when they disagreed with the definition and believed that the infection wasn't actually true, they called it as mm. as neuronal infection. So they didn't actually apply the definition um, mm. because they didn't believe the definition. So I, I think there's a bit of that in um, that sort of attitude in this paper yeah, too. Okay. Yeah. Some of the quotes are quite interesting from this paper. Uh, I uh, I think they really hammer home and link nicely to the to the themes that were presented. Um, you know, I think there was a quote there that on the on the definition um, side of things and the trust side, I think it was a quote that says, we've gone through some of those um, about trusting the data and trusting definitions. So I know I really had conversations with my team and said, you know, the definitions are the definitions. And, you know, that's both sides of that point we were just talking about, which is people questioning the definitions and then on the flip side going, well, that are definitions are the definitions. So... And yeah. it's not always about the definitions too. It's, <laughs> no. it's also about practice. And uh, one of the yeah. quotes that stood out for me was uh, uh, the person said, what they did is stop culturing the patients. <laughs> so they yeah. stopped taking cultures. And so there's that culture culture that um, has to yeah. be addressed as well. That really, I, I found that comment, and it came through a couple, a couple of times as a theme, I think, interesting because I always had in my mind, are, are clinicians actually going to really stop taking samples because in the back of their mind they're worried about calling this an infection so if you had someone who's critically ill in icu and you're going oh no i'm not going to take that blood culture because i'm worried about the fact that being called a bloodstream infection i find that somewhat difficult to believe it systemically that could happen i i don't doubt on an individual basis some of the calling of that might might happen um and so I wonder how much could be put down to that particular element of non-testing as a way to get around, you know, higher rates of infection. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I'm not exactly sure. I think you're right. I think. Well, I'm not saying I'm right. I was just. It struck out at me because I thought oh, I've never. I, I just couldn't fathom that happening yeah. and, but if that's actually what is happening then that that's obviously a real yeah concern. i can't fathom it happening systematically like you said as well but you know financial incentives can have perverse effects mm. and if if somebody knows that their hospital or their unit is going to be financially penalized if they report a certain um bit of data then that could well influence their the way that they go about it and and we all know mm. um particularly when we relate this to hand hygiene. As soon as you set a benchmark, the benchmark gets met. Um, and, um, you know, particularly with financial incentives, it can be very counterintuitive because if you're penalising um, those facilities that have bigger problems, it could be because they have less financial resources that, that cause yeah. their problems. And so they actually need the funds more than the other facilities. So it's, it's, That's right. I think when finances are involved, it really muddies the water. Uh, I, I agree completely, and I think that point was well made by some of the commentary in the paper too. And they, and they put make the point of you know there might be ho hospitals. I think there might be in socio demographic areas that actually would require additional assistance, perhaps rather than a punitive approach. So I think you're right. When there's financial stuff going in, that's a different kettle of fish. For my mind, the purpose of surveillance is really to be able to evaluate what you're doing. Um, both internally and benchmark, but learn off others uh, and work out what you could be doing better or what you're doing successfully and share that with others. And I think that's the beauty of public reporting as opposed to it being linked necessarily to financial um, implications. 
Uh, yeah, it, I, I agree. Um, the other thing that I didn't find in is this paper was any commentary about appropriate risk adjustment of data either. Mm. Um, so I think that's another thing that, that really needs to be very carefully considered with the public reporting of of HIA data. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with that one. There were, um, there were a couple of other um, things that I found um, interesting, and, and the authors say that the participants didn't express any opinions about potential positive consequences of public reporting. And that's interesting. And I think one of the recommendations is perhaps that that could be a targeted piece of work for the future. Um, because I think there would certainly be some positive um, sides to public reporting, you know. Because you know, you can use this sort of data in so many ways. You could use it if you're on at, at an area that's um, perhaps have higher infection rates. You've, you've potentially got more ammunition to go to your management to be able to say, "I need X, Y, and Z support," and in whatever form that might be, to be able to help address this issue. Because look, this this is saying we've got a problem here. It also helps with some of the conversations locally about um, being one step removed from some of these processes where there's just internal reports that go around and around a hospital that say we've got a problem but nothing actually ever happens about it. So um, I think there are some good advantages that can be used even if the results aren't that favourable for your own institution. And if there are um, really favourable results, there's a great opportunity to share those. Yeah, and this it all really comes back to the purpose of the surveillance program, doesn't it? Um, mm. We're collecting data to, for internal purposes to improve our quality, um, and are we going to use that same data to be measured against other facilities in a public mm. reporting arena, or do we use some other sort of metric? And I think that hospital performance comparison is better placed for electronic data, um, particularly, you know, um, using algorithms to identify. So you're taking out that human element and you're applying those same algorithms across electronic mm. medical records to identify. probably can't do as broad a scope of surveillance as you can internally, but it's, I think it's really difficult to find the one set of data that serves all those purposes. That's so true. And often when, you know, I, I was involved in Tasmania and setting up public uh, the reporting of HIAs there, and in fact, Tasmania was the first state in Australia to do that. And you know, the in original intent of that was quite clear and, and reasonably good support after some of these methodological and other issues were ironed out. But you know, subsequently, um, what people do with that data and how they choose to do it in other elements of the department becomes more complex and and predictable because you kind of know that's going to happen even though it wasn't the intent of the original purpose of setting that up. And so, so you're right. I think that's the challenge. When you go down the route of public reporting, it can be used to other means in which it wasn't intended. Um, and and that's that's a slippery slope, potentially. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the, the common reasons um, that is used for public reporting also is because it helps inform consumers and consumers want to know this information and they could even use it to, you know, determine which health service they attend, um, which mm. which reminded me of a study that I led back in 2019. We published in, in AGIC and we interviewed consumers about their knowledge and attitudes towards public um, reporting. And it, there, mm. it was quite revealing because a significant cohort of them preferred not to know what the HIA rates were 
Um, and and probably and more important for their choice of health service was a previous relationship, um, yeah. and, and also with that with that health service, and um, and also hearsay from friends and, and relatives more so than any data that that could get reported. So uh, interesting it makes yeah. us wonder why we are public reporting sometimes. Yeah, that's true. I didn't see your article cited in this uh, in this paper, Phil, but I guess this wasn't on the consumer side. But there was an interesting quote in the um, paper uh, from someone that said, I remember one patient I saw that said, oh, I look at the rates to see what the infection were here before I decided uh, to come in terms of elective surgeries. So you know, that was the clinician recalling what a patient had said from this study. But... Um, yeah, it, it is interesting. I think we do need to have that balance of of really making sure we get the consumer's view on what do they want to know, and does it uh, does it matter? I agree. I mean, surveillance has has um, has got legs and arms everywhere these days. It used to be a very simple program <laughs> in, at a hospital setting, but now everybody wants a piece of it. Uh, and I think yeah. we need to be very clear as to the purposes of. Uh, of, of the program and what the data is to be used for. Well, that's a good way, I think, to to sum up, Phil. Thanks, everybody, for joining us for this episode of Infection Control Matters. Thanks, Phil. Always good to have a chat about surveillance and these things. Uh, good to chat to you too, Brett. And uh, until next time on Infection Control Matters, that's bye from now. <laughs>